Good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're honored that you are here. I'm going to let you know about a couple of things going on in our community, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, while I do, our greeters are going to pass some baskets around in case you'd like to make an offering. There's never any pressure on that, uh, but I usually just forget about that, so I'm proud that I haven't forgotten this time. Uh, that's great. A couple things going on. First of all, next week uh, at the center of our gathering will be a practice that we call Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper. Uh, you might have had some experience with that. You might not have, uh, but we want to invite you into that especially. Uh, it'll be sort of the, the centerpiece of our liturgy next week. And I also just want to remind you again, maybe you've heard this before, but um, for this church, we're convinced that anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus is radically welcome at the table with Jesus. So uh, it doesn't even matter if you have all your beliefs worked out or if you're especially proud of the week that you've just had or not. Uh, if you want to be at the table with, with Christ, we would love to welcome you there. Uh, so that's coming up next week. Uh, don't miss that. And then uh, one quick update from behind the scenes, uh, a little bit of how we've been trying to steward the resources that this community provided through our Christmas offering last year. Uh, one piece in that puzzle was that we wanted to begin scouting whether there were a, a, a few ways that we should show up to learn and contribute outside South Bend as a church. Uh, from our beginning, we really started by being focused uh, very, very intentionally just on our neighborhood right here, our city, South Bend. Uh, but we have that last word in our identity, a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And so we've been thinking it's time to start asking some questions about where we should show up in other places and, and how we should show up. So uh, I just want to report back to you that like, one little piece in that exploration is that uh, Ryan Yazel and I spent some time in Northern Ireland over the past week and a half. And we were there mostly in Belfast uh, for, for two real reasons. One was to spend some time with our friends at Redeemer Central Church. Uh, you've heard us talk about them before. And there's just a really sense of, a sense of kindredness, I think, uh, between these two communities that um, isn't formal or anything like that, but it's just been really great to explore that together. Uh, the other uh, reason to be there was uh, to learn from a nonprofit partner that does really good work um, helping form communities of peacemakers, and especially where there's entrenched conflict. So it's an organization that works in places uh, where conflict is, is really overt. And so they work in the Middle East, and they're beginning to work in Northern Ireland. And they also um, work in the American South to help us understand our own history of racial injustice. And so um, we're just like getting to know them further and see what they're up to. It's like no conclusions to report, but I just wanted you to know that we're out there and we're working on it and we're excited as a community to kind of put the pieces together uh, coming out of 2019. So there's that. Uh, it also means I'm still a bit jet lagged. So if this is incoherent, blame it on, blame it on the airplane, okay? Um, uh, today, baptism is happening. This is very exciting. Uh, we have three, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, we have three people. We have Anthony and Haley and Joshua who are going to be baptized in our gathering a little later today. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we just wanted to sort of put one final word into the conversation that we've been having uh, around the big idea that's been leading toward this. And it's one of the big ideas that has shaped this community from the beginning. It's our mantra, which is represented by that uh, illustration on the top right up there, everyone an icon. This big, big, beautiful idea that every human being is a bearer of the image of God. We've been talking about that for a long time as a church, but we've been trying to sort of let that breathe a little more deeply, and we've been exploring different things that it might mean for us individually and as a church. And today we want to put like one final word in that, right? But out of the gate, uh, we've talked about, um, like we have many times, that if every human life is a bearer of the sacred image, then that certainly means that every human life is a carrier of unassailable dignity. Right? This is true for you, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not. We, we believe that your life carries within it an intrinsic, unassailable dignity 
that um, even though people might have warred against that or tried to diminish it, it, it doesn't change the fact that there's something intrinsically sacred about you. And we think it's good for you to be you, and we celebrate that. It also, of course, means that your neighbors, it's good for your neighbors to be your neighbors. Um, for even the people who stand on the other side of lines that we draw, that they too are carriers of that sacred worth. So we talk a lot about dignity when we talk about everyone in Icon. And it's personal and relational, and it's the way that we try to practice our life together as a church. And sometimes it calls on us to do some of the work of dismantling the things in the world that war against the dignity of our brothers and sisters. But there's dignity. Uh, then we talked about creativity. Because in the book of Genesis, the very beginning, when God declares that women and men are bearers of the image of God, the, the one thing that we know about God at that point is that God is incredibly creative, right? And so if we're here to bear the image of God, to resemble God, to carry the life of God in the world somehow, well, then it means that we're here to be creative too. But I don't mean artistic, right? I don't mean um, like specifically or especially the people who are really good with the things that you think of as artistic. I just mean that you're here to get your hands on the raw materials of this world and, and give it an upgrade, make something beautiful with it, right? For some of us, it's the relationships that we have and the people that we affect with our lives. For others, it is physically the raw materials of, of matter that we get our hands on. For others, it's like digital spaces that we work in, but we all have some way of, of shaping the world around us, and to bear the image of God is to use that power to make things better and more beautiful, to give things an upgrade, right? We talked about this peculiar idea in Christian theology that God is somehow three in one, that God is somehow, like within God, that God is somehow intrinsically relationship, that God is somehow community. And if, if it's true that God is community or relationship, then we cannot bear the image of God alone. Like definitionally, you can't bear the image of God alone if God is a relationship, and so we have to do it together. And we've talked about grace, and the idea that, um, that Jesus wasn't God on a good day, but that this, the very same character, mercy, love, grace that we see in Jesus have, have always been true of God. The, God's uh, first word in the law in the Old Testament is, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Like all the way back there in the law, the first word is grace. It's God moving toward people in favor and kindness and mercy. So we've been working through these, these ideas of, of what God is like and then what we're here to be like, because the idea is that we're here to resemble those things, to be in the flow of those things, right? But we've, we've sort of saved the best for last. Because today I wanna, I wanna argue that all of those things, dignity and creativity and community and grace, that all of those things are actually predicated on something even in deeper and more fundamental in the nature of God. Something deeper and more fundamental in what we are here for. I wanna argue that, that if you really pull the curtain back, if you see God for what, who God is, if you, if you really get clear on that, there's something even more central and essential. And that if we miss this, like if I don't talk about this today, I'm guilty of pastoral malpractice. Like I ought to be fired because this is, this is like right at the heart of the story that we're trying to tell. So that's what I wanna get at today. Now, uh, we've been talking about um, the nature of God, and we've been locating that not just in this big sweeping story, but also really specifically in, in the encounter with Jesus, in the character that's revealed there, in the posture that's revealed there, right? So I thought today, to, to get to this one last big idea, we'd go back and see if we can relate to the experience of the people that were around Jesus for a little bit, and see if we might have some of the same misconceptions that they have, if we might be tempted to miss some of the same things that they're tempted to miss, and then to see how Jesus confronts that and what he has to say about it, right? So uh, we're going to go uh, to the book of Matthew. Uh, this is um, maybe like two-thirds into the book of Matthew, where the people have been with Jesus for a while. And it seems that as you follow the story of the disciples, they have this slowly dawning recognition 
that the, that the life of God is being lived in Jesus. This slowly dawning recognition that this story that we're a part of is gonna culminate with the curtain getting pulled back and the character, the presence, the life of God being seen for what it really is. Now, for these people, for these disciples, when they think about God showing up, about the curtain being pulled back, about seeing God for who God really is, when they think about that, they have some very particular expectations for what that's gonna look like. And I wanna draw our attention to it because we too, I think, are, are far too easily sort of um, tempted to put our expectations on what this will look like rather than let ourselves be moved by what's actually revealed, okay? So let me take you to Matthew 16, where Jesus is hanging out with his friends and he has this conversation. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Essentially, what's the word on the street about me and our movement and what all of this means, right? Like, what's the word out there? So the disciples respond, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These are, these are uh, with Elijah and Jeremiah, throwbacks to uh, central figures in the religious history of Israel. And then uh, John the Baptist is a more contemporary figure and in fact a relative of Jesus, but they all have this kind of prophetic work that they're doing in the world. And so Jesus might be kind of flattered by that. Like, you know, being called like, you know, in the way or in the vein of Elijah or Jeremiah, John the Baptist, that's kind of high praise. That's kind of a, a big mantle for him to carry. But then he turns to his friends and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? They're like, how, how are you interpreting this experience that you are having right now? And then we have this answer here from Simon Peter who says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now let's hang here for just a second. For Peter to say you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, is to grab a bunch of historical expectations and bring them forward into this moment. So Messiah is a word that literally means anointed, but it evokes the idea for these people that there's another king that's gonna come and that God's power is gonna be on this person, God's life is gonna be lived through this person, and God's agenda is gonna be accomplished by that king. In other words, when Messiah comes, the curtain's gonna get pulled back, and the life and the presence and the power of God are gonna show up and do the things that we think God should do. When we read Son of Living God, this is as if to say like there's, there's a, a tight resemblance between God and you, Jesus. So like your story, your life, your actions, your words, your behaviors, they, they reveal God. The curtain's getting pulled back, right? Now here's the thing. So far, Jesus likes this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, he's saying, you're right. What you are seeing here is a revelation of the character and the presence of God in the world. Like when you look at me, you're getting a glimpse of what God is like. So far, so good. You're on the right track. And then this happens just a few verses later. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to new life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Next slide. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. If Jesus calls you Satan, you're having a bad day, right? <laughs> so just follow what happened here, right? Jesus asked his friends, how do you name what's happening in this experience that you're having with me? And after sort of um, bouncing around the reputations that are surrounding Jesus, they come to their own understanding, and, and they say that, that God is somehow being revealed through you. God's presence is manifest in you. The life of God's being lived through you. The character of God is on display in you. The agenda of God is being accomplished through you. 
And Jesus responds and says, you're exactly right. That, that, that is what's happening here. And then the next thing that Jesus does is he takes a strange sort of left turn and says, and the next thing that's going to happen in this revelation of the nature of God is I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter understandably says, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. That's not how this story goes. Because we've been told our whole lives, our entire history, that when God shows up, it will be with a kind of, um, a kind of victorious power that will vindicate us against our enemies. And so how could you do that for us if you're going to die at the hands of our enemies? We need you to be the one that overwhelms our enemies, not the one that surrenders to them. And so Peter turns to Jesus and says, you've got it wrong. And Jesus then in response chooses the most intense a confrontational word for this. He calls him Satan, which I would argue is a concentrated way of saying that what you are doing is anti-God. What you're saying is incompatible with God. This attachment that you have to a vision of God, which is this sort of dominating power, this this sort of um, vengeance against the enemy sort of thing that you are looking for, not only is it wrong, but it's as wrong as you can get. And he says, I'm trying to show you that God is, is fundamentally different than you think. And you're not going to just hear it in my words. You're going to see it manifested in the most unexpected and powerful way, which is you're going to see me die. What is it that's being revealed about God? What is it within God? What is it at the center of that which gives being to the, the universe? What is it at the very center of all of that which explains that God would desire that, that there would be created things that, that, that bear the actual image of God, the sacred worth of God in the world. What is it in God that would compel that? What is it in God that would compel God to create? There's days when, I don't know about you, but it looks around and you're like, this is a mess. This might have been a bad idea, right? I was talking with a, a, a friend of mine um, who has a very different life experience of my own. He's a venture capitalist who lives in Beverly Hills who works in this field called biomimicry where they take the sort of iterative patterns of evolutionary uh, nature and they, they use the sort of stupendous results of that iterative process to solve modern design problems in the, in the world. And so we're having a conversation of, where you kind of feel like we're coming from two very different places of life experience and background. Um, and he was working out whether this God thing made any sense at all. And the question he posed to me was like, if, if, God, if there is a God, like why on earth would God create? Because this seems really messy. <laughs> And kind of problematic. If God is all the things that are traditionally said of God, that God is sort of self-sufficient, needing nothing, right, all this stuff, right, then why would God create? And then the more I thought about it, the more it struck me that the thing about God that we are naming today that I haven't named yet, the thing that we're naming about God today is inherently generative. It, the thing that we're about to name, it, it can't help but give itself away and, and to create more what is it about God that, that would draw us into community, that would call us toward one another? What is it in God that would compel God's posture toward humanity to be one of unending grace, of mercy, of forgiveness after forgiveness? What is it in God that would compel that? What is that thing that has been hinted at by all the other things that we say about God, all the other true things that we name about God? What is the thing that's at the center of God that's meant to be at the center of us? For the people who are being baptized, what are they being baptized into? Like, like, what is the clear picture of God that this whole story has always been trying to put in front of us, but that we are slow to see and even slower to understand? Well, Jesus is with his friends, and they say, 
I think the curtain is being pulled back and the nature of God is being revealed and the life of God is being lived through you and he says, yes. And then he says, and by the way, here's what that's gonna look like. I'm going to suffer and die. And they say, no, that can't be right. And he says, no, the fact that you think that's not right is anti-God because the thing being revealed in my death and my suffering is at the center of God. Well, in John's gospel, a word is given to that very particular experience of seeing Jesus die. And the word shows up in John 15. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This has been a very long way to get to a very simple word, which is that at the very center of God is love. And the reason for going the long way to get there is I'm afraid that if we just stand up and say God is love, that it's just, it's just too easy for us to like think that we get it and totally miss it. Because we're not talking about a sentimental feeling. We're not just talking about affection, although I think affection is, is within God for creation. But we're talking about something more harrowing, more substantial than that. We're talking about the thing demonstrated when Jesus is willing to die rather than kill Rather, uh, rather than overpowering his enemies, he's willing to surrender to them to give up everything. Like that, that very peculiar, particular picture of love. That when we brought our very worst against God, when we committed our greatest act of blasphemy, which is to bring violence against that which is the image of God in the world, the icon of God, that when we brought our very worst, that the response wasn't righteous vengeance, or uh, some kind of justified act of punishment upon us, but simply to, to surrender to it and to take it so that we would see clearly that at the very center of the heart of God, at the very center of God's nature is love. Not just some sentimental idea, but like a harrowing revelation of the soul at the heart of God is love. Now, um, the community that gave us John's gospel also gave us uh, some later letters in the New Testament, 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, that all seem to come from the same sort of Jesus community that was um, living and writing uh, in the decades after Jesus. And from 1 John, we read this way of sort of putting it. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love. Not um, love is on a long list of attributes which compete against one another in the character of God. Not that love is a, a loophole or a disclaimer or on the third page of the contract, but like at the center of God, at the very definition of God is love. And what I've learned in my own life, at least, is that I can affirm that theoretically and live a million miles away from it. But then when we start to live in this idea, that when we start to open our hearts to trust this idea, that things change in pretty dramatic ways that like life sort of opens up within us when we're willing to like really surrender to this idea. Uh, like 13 years ago, through a long story I won't bore you with today, I found myself surrounded by a group of people who really mattered to me, 
and for whom I felt this really intense sense of calling or purpose. Meaning when I was with them, it didn't just feel casual or accidental. It felt like there's a reason that we are in each other's lives. And again, there's a long story behind all that. I won't bore you with it today, but I'll just tell you, like, every time I was with them, most days of the week during that season of my life, I woke up with this really intense sense of burden and calling. And by the way, as we talk about bearing the image of God for the world, that's what we're talking about, right? That's calling. That's like you wake up with a purpose to, to bear that life for the world, right? And so I had this uh, strange but very intense sense that these people who were in my life were the venue or the, the context where I was supposed to be living up to that somehow. So I don't know about you, but like when you wake up with a sense of purpose or calling or conviction about you being in other people's lives, the, I, I pivoted to the only posture that I knew how to make sense of any of that. And the posture that I knew was I got to change them, fix them, reach them, convert them. Right? You ever been there? It may not be in religious sense, but like a lot of us like seem to wake up thinking that our job is to change, fix, reach, convert somebody else, right? Don't point at your spouse right now. But like, <laughs> here's the thing too. If you knew these friends at the time, you would be quick to affirm for me that there was a bunch that needed change, fixed, reached, and converted in these people. Like, there were some behaviors that were severely problematic. There were some things that were really difficult about these people, which is part of where I probably had this sense of calling or conviction, right? But the thing is, I just kept beating my head against the wall. Have you ever moved toward another person thinking your job is to change them, fix them, convert them, reach them, and discovered it doesn't go well? That's not a great energy in a relationship, right? That doesn't do a, a whole lot for the kind of connections that actually give birth to anything good in the world. And so I just kept beating my head against the wall, getting very frustrated about it. And after getting sort of lost in this whole experience, I, I, I had this feeling that I needed to find some clarity. And so I, I posed for myself a couple of uh, hypothetical questions. I imagined myself somehow sort of having to come to account before God for what I had done with these people in my life, how I had interacted with them, and whether I had seized the moment that had been created between us. And like in, in that sort of hypothetical scenario, I just asked myself, like, do I think that God is going to ask me if I changed them, or do I think that God is going to ask me if I loved them? Just that. When I sat with those two questions for a little bit, I, I found myself like, held by this very deep sense of conviction that is still with me 13 years later as a friend, as a family member, as a pastor, all, all the above. In all these settings, I find this deeply rooted conviction, which is that God's not going to ask me if I change them or fix them. God's going to ask me if I loved them. Like, I really believe that. And here's the thing. There, there was a tangible, palpable shift in the experience of connection that was going beyond, be, between uh, me and, and these friends of mine, and I, I mean like night and day, like black and white, from this kind of frustrated, sort of challenged space between us to this incredibly rich, uh, fruitful, um, dynamic, life-giving experience where I don't know if they were changing me or I was changing them, but I know that love began to really sort of work its way between us and it's been, you know, over a decade later, and the stories that I could tell you from the past 13 years of the kind of profound moments that we have shared and the experiences that have shaped us, that, that I am absolutely certain probably wouldn't have happened had I not gotten clear on the fact that, like, love is not one of the things on the list. It's not a tactic to get something else to happen. It's not bait to get somebody to change. That, that love is at the very center of the being of God, and that love is, is meant to be at the very center of the way that we live and move and work in this world. And that it's love that would compel God to desire that women and men would be full carriers of the weight and the power and the dignity of God in the world. 
that it's love that would compel God to create. That love is sort of inherently generative, right? I mean, think, for example, like as one sort of case study, when a woman and a man love each other very much, what usually happens? More life, right? Like, and whether it's biology or other sort of settings, like, love is inherently generative. Like, love has this way of just creating more. That just is a way that love works in the world, right? That it would be love that would compel God to call us into relationship with one another, and that it would be love that would compel God. Like, like of course God is gracious toward us, because God loves us. Of course God forgives, because God loves us. And then, of course, the challenging and prophetic and confrontational things that we hear from the voice of God in Scripture or through other people, they're predicated on love, right? Because love cares about the world that we are creating and the way that it might be hurting certain, certain beloveds, right? So, of course, love speaks to us about difficult things, but it comes from love at the baseline, at the center and if we, we are here to bear the image of God for the world, we are here to be baptized into love. We are here to live lives in the flow or the current of love, not just some sentimental affection, but the kind of harrowing love which lays down its life for the good of the beloved. If we say everyone an icon, what we really mean is everyone a beloved and everyone a lover. Everyone here to live and move in the current of love for the sake of the world. Now, um, Let's just kind of set that on the table for a moment. I want to pivot very briefly to another word that often comes up, whether we're talking about God or baptism or church. And the other word that I want to mention for a second is belief. Right? Because like, like often when we talk about religion, we talk about belief and we talk about the things that we believe. And often people who are being baptized are asked whether they believe certain things. And one of the ways that the church has historically asked people what they believe when they're baptized is to turn to this set of statements that we call the Apostles' Creed. Let me share this with you. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And he descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So that's a statement of belief, sort of a list of beliefs that historically churches have affirmed and have asked people who are being baptized if they affirm that kind of stuff, right? But here's the thing I want to sort of clarify as we move toward baptism and as we talk about the nature of God and the nature of us. Which is, again, I'm saying this is a story about love more than it's a story about anything else. That at the heart of God, at the heart of what it means for us to live out the life of God is love. But then, then what can feel weird is then we pivot toward these sort of academic statements of propositional belief. And we ask questions about whether the furniture in your brain is arranged just right. So that if we could like flip through the binder in your brain and go to page 3, paragraph 2, section 4a, like does it correspond to the body of propositions that we as a community have affirmed before? Anybody ever felt that way? And has it felt like a little disjointed or disconnected from this other thing we're saying, which is it's about love and it's bigger than the ideas in your head. Anybody else ever felt that? Well, here's the thing. That statement that I just read that we call the Apostles' Creed is called a creed because the first word in the statement in Latin is credo. That's why we call it a creed. Well, here's the thing about that word credo that you might have not known before. Maybe nobody ever told you this before. Let me turn to a scholar named Diana Eck. She's a rock star scholar at Harvard who has written a book called Encountering God. And Eck clarifies it when she says this. The Latin credo, which gets translated into the creed, I believe, right, literally means I give my heart 
Did you know that when the church has said we believe, what we, what we were meant to be saying is we give our heart? Faith is not about propositions, but about commitment. It doesn't mean that I intellectually subscribe to the following list of statements, but I give my heart to this reality, to this story that God is telling. Believe, indeed, comes to us from the old English beloved. Did you know that? When, we talk, when somebody asks you, what do you believe about X, Y, and Z? Just tell them about your love. Be like, I, I know what you're asking. You're asking about the affections of my heart and what story I'm trusting. Yeah, great. Let's talk about that, right? Beloved, making clear that this too is meant to be heart language. To say, I believe in Jesus Christ is not to subscribe to an uncertain proposition. It's a confession of commitment, of love. So when we are at our best as a church, the story that we've been inviting one another into is, is to say, I, I give my heart to this picture of reality. I give my heart to the story of a God who loves this world like a mother or a father, and because like a mother or a father is so moved with love that this God has desired that there would be more life, more creation. So I give my heart to that story. It's to say, I give my heart to the story of God who is so in love with this world that God would wrap God's self up in flesh and blood, that God would manifest God's life through a peasant preacher 2,000 years ago, and that when that life was manifested, it would reveal that at the heart of God has not been some domineering sort of vengeful power, but at the heart of God has been this sacrificial willingness to lay everything down for the sake of the beloved. If I ask you what you believe, what we're really saying is, does your heart trust this story? Are you learning to open yourself up to this story of love? It's to say my heart finds itself resting in the story of spirit, which is given to the world, that the life of God is never far away from us. That God is always working with us, wooing us to become who we are here to become. It's to say, I give my heart to the story of, of a global, historical, cosmic sort of family of imperfect sisters and brothers that we call the communion of saints. To know that we're not alone and that we have other flesh and blood examples that we can learn from. That holiness is lurking in the lives of everyday people that we can bump up against. It's to say that we give our heart to the promise of forgiveness at the heart of God. It's to say that we give our heart to the promise of life that goes on and on and on. That we are opening up inside our chests to this reality and beginning to learn how to live and dance with it. That makes sense to me if at the, at the heart of God is love. And so for us who are here to bear the image of God, we're here to let our hearts settle deeply down into that story and see what kind of good life comes from it. And for those who are being baptized today, I'm suggesting that what we're really baptizing them into is this sacred story of the love of God revealed, believing that you belong, that you are welcome in this family, that nothing you have ever done or could do would have you expelled from that belonging and that you are being called to grow up into the life of God in your life for the sake of the world because God knows we need you. We need you growing and becoming who you really are for the world because we've got work to do, right? So that's um, maybe one final piece in this conversation that we've been trying to have about what it means to bear the image of God for the world. And in a moment... Uh, We'll invite uh, the people who are being baptized, Anthony and Haley and Joshua, to join us in the pool. When they do that, uh, we're going to ask them three questions to just sort of give a confession of sorts. So the questions that we'll ask them are these. Do you trust that you've been made to bear the image of God, and are you saying yes to the life of God being lived in you? Then we'll ask them, do you trust that God in Christ has forgiven you for any failure to live out this calling? And finally, we'll ask them, have you decided to follow Jesus to be formed in the image of Christ so that you may become your truest self for the sake of the world? 
Now here's the deal, they're gonna answer those three questions and then we have a part to play because this is a family affair and it's a community event, right? So upon hearing uh, somebody respond to those three questions, then we're all gonna respond to them and say, we've heard your confession, we affirm your decision, and we celebrate with you because we see the image of God in you. And then upon us affirming them, uh, we'll baptize. Every, every gathering we've had the joy of having a different team member in the pool. So we had Zach and then Stacy and then Daniel join me for this gathering. And we'll baptize in the name of Father and Son and Spirit. And when we bring them up out of the water, uh, there's one more sort of moment of work for all of us, right? Here's the thing. Ordinarily, we're a very opt-in community. You feel that, right? Hopefully you come in here and it's like, we don't try to coerce you or manipulate you or command you to do anything, really. It's like, if you want to come to the table, come to the table. If you want to sing, sing. If you want to pray, pray, right? So that's ordinarily our posture. That's not my posture on this. When they get out of the water, every darn person in the room, I think, ought to like be celebrating them and making sure they know um, that, that we see this goodness in them and that we affirm it together. So that's the plan. Does that sound good? Yeah, okay, awesome. Cool. Uh, Dan and team are going to lead us, and uh, we'll have those who are going to be baptized in the pool here in just a moment. Will we ever rise? Will we ever rise above the fear? Can we learn to see the need? Can we share humanity? I can see another day come. Broken people, we can be made whole. We can be made whole. We can be made whole as we lay. Sing with us. 
broken people. to stand with you as a family and a community and to tell you what we see in you, that we affirm this. I'm going to ask you to answer these questions now. Uh, Anthony, do you trust that you have been made to bear the image of God? And are you saying yes to the life of God being lived in you? Yes. yes. And Anthony, do you trust that God and Christ has forgiven you for any failure to live out this calling? Yes. Last question. Have you decided to follow Jesus to be formed in the image of Christ so that you may become your truest self for the sake of the world? I have. Awesome. Church, we respond. We affirm your confession. We affirm your decision. And we celebrate with you because we see the image of God in you. Anthony, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. that we've just witnessed. So let's pray these words together. May we trust that every one of us has been made to bear the image of God. May we say yes to the life of God being lived in us. May we trust that God in Christ has forgiven us for any failure to live out this calling. May we choose today and every day to follow the way of Jesus, to be formed in the image of Christ, so that we may become our truest selves for the sake of the world. And make 
grace and peace be with you. And also with you. Amen. Love you. We'll see you soon.